Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. And, uh, guys, just want to skip the message and get on into lunch? Nah, we can't do that. But we will be, uh, I am excited about breaking that fast as a church. I hope it's been profitable for you. Uh, And I would love to hear some testimonies. You know, when we do a healing series and we pray for the sick, usually we'll pray for the sick uh, as part of the service every time we're in a healing series. We do a, it's been a long time, well, not a super long time, but probably longer than it should have been uh, since I have uh, taught a series or preached a full message on giving and receiving. But when we do that, we want to hear testimonies of how God's worked in your life. During this time of prayer and fasting, I would love to hear from you. I have heard from some of you, but I would love for you to share in a form that I could maybe share with the rest of the congregation about uh, things God has shown you and ways God has developed you during these three weeks. Uh, And last week, we began to look at the real power of the fast, which is what? It's prayer, right? That's what fasting is really all about. Fasting doesn't make our prayers more potent. We remember the story uh, just last week. We talked about Lester Summerall confronting that demoniac, and they had agreed to fast and pray before they, they confronted this demoniac. And when they got there, the demon for a moment refused to go because he pointed at one of the guys on the team and said he didn't fast. And Lester Summerall made that man and that demon understand that it wasn't about going without food that gave them the authority to cast out demons. Today, I want to focus again on the truth that it is prayer, not fasting, that makes the difference in the world, makes the difference in our lives. And this is probably going to lead into an examination of some great men and women of faith in the Bible. I'm not saying this is the start of a new series. It might be, uh, but I also... I might have to push that down the road a little bit. Either way, there's, there are a couple of other things that I need to address from the pulpit, some other topics uh, that I want to uh, talk about. It'll just take a week or two to sort out which direction we go first. I think we will stay on this uh, great men and women of prayer in the Bible for a week or two because already the message that I had outlined for today uh, got severely altered when I, when I began to uh, go over it just in the last day or two. It's the same message, I just don't get nearly as far. I was going to look, we were going to look at Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Elijah today. Uh, and we will look at Abraham today. <laughs> because there's some details that I just felt were necessary uh, to dig into a little bit. All right, so let's... Um, Let's start in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, Abraham, most of you know and most of you remember that God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees or Ur of the Chaldeans uh, to a place that he would show him. He was to leave his family, his people, his land, and go to the land that God would show him when he got there. Uh, For what it's worth, he took Lot with him. Now, I preached a message years ago uh, about, I think it was five, five times that Abraham missed it. And this was one of them. 
he was commanded to leave his family, but he took some of his family. And he wasn't commanded to leave his wife. One, you're one flesh with your wife, okay? But he's his kin, his kinfolk. Uh, but he took Lot with him. Now, I'm not going to I'm not going to draw a hard line there and say Abraham missed it by taking Lot. But it's a possibility. And certainly, Abraham ended up fighting uh, a battle he would not have had to fight if he'd left Lot behind. Anyway, he, uh, he and Lot prospered when they got to Canaan, the land that God brought them to. And they, they prospered so much that it started to get crowded as their, as their uh, flocks multiplied. So they had to spread out, put some space between them, and Lot ended up taking his family to live uh, on the plains of Sodom. They spread their tents as far as Sodom and eventually uh, wound up living in the city, which was, even at that time, at that moment, an exceedingly wicked place. In chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham in the company of two other men. These were angels who proclaimed that within a year, Sarah... Abraham's wife would give birth to a son. And there's a lot of good stuff in that conversation. I love it. But it's, here's the part I want you to see today. Very familiar passage, but listen to it. Don't, don't uh, I'll pick it up when you're done reading this. I've heard it a hundred times. You might hear something different. This is in Genesis, what did I say, 18? Beginning in verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, this is him now turning to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous people in the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you, would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should, not, should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. 
And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now I need you to see a couple of things here. God, by his own counsel, had bound himself in a covenant with Abraham. This is what God is talking about with the angels. Look, Abe, we're, we're getting ready to go. We came down here to do a couple things today. One is to tell Abraham and Sarah the good news. They're going to have a son a year from now, within a year. Second is we're going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. The outcry it talks about the outcry. You know, this is just like the echoes of the victims of the sin in this city crying out for justice. And it's interesting that he says, well, let me say this first. He's like, we're on our way to do this. He goes, but Abraham's my man. I'm doing great. I've spoken great things to him. My plan, working through human history all the way to the Messiah and beyond, is starting with this guy. This is an important man in my scheme. I, I'm going to tell him what we're doing. He's going to be a part of this moment, too. And again, interesting that he says, uh, I, I'm going to go down and see if it's as bad as this outcry that has come to me. There is this vertical imagery there. Like this cry has risen to God's ears in heaven. And rather than pull Abraham up there to stand with him in judgment, he says, I'm going to go down and view this from the human perspective. Did God know how wicked, again, it's kind of like what we were talking about, uh, now I know that you love me, Abraham, the sacrifice of Isaac. Did God know how evil Sodom and Gomorrah were? He absolutely did. But he's robbing mankind of the opportunity to accuse him of, oh, you're up there in your insulated little heaven. Everything's going to look worse from your perspective. He's, I'm going to come down and look at it from your perspective. And I'm going to speak to Abraham about it from this perspective. He's not learning anything. That's not the main thing. Implicit in this investigation is the impending judgment, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know this because of the conversation, this dialogue that takes place between Abraham and the Lord. Now you know, and I know, and God knows what Abraham was concerned with. Is Abraham at the core concerned about the destruction of the city, he's concerned about his nephew, Lot, who lives in the city, Lot and his family. This is who he's interceding for. This is why he's bringing it up with God. Now, it could be, and you know, you read on about Lot, and I don't really get, Lot doesn't come across to me as a super righteous individual. You know, just, and there's some crazy stuff that goes on, but, and, but Abraham had a soft spot for him, and maybe Lot was more righteous than I uh, than the, the, the he appears in Genesis. But either way, if this is what your goal is, it seems the logical place to start would be to go to simply go to God and say, would you get my nephew out of there before you destroy this place? I agree with you, it's a wicked city, but can you just at least spare Lot? And on the other hand, maybe Abraham doesn't want to come right out and ask Maybe that seems selfish. So what, what does he ask? He expresses his concern, and I, be, I believe it's a legitimate, a legitimate concern from a justice standpoint. I understand 
The city as a whole is crying out for justice, but if there's 50 righteous people there, they don't deserve that justice. What's going to happen to them? What fascinates me is that God doesn't respond this way, as I would have. Don't worry. I'll get the 50 out of there. There's 50 there, or 45, or 40, or 30, or 20, or 10. God was, I believe, I'm personally convinced, God was going to rescue Lot anyway. Abraham or no Abraham in this moment. Maybe not. Doesn't matter. Point is, this is God's response. It's not, I'll get the innocent out. God always has, you know. He got Noah. There's a pattern right there. There weren't many innocents, but he, got, he, uh, he rescued them in the middle. Rahab, the harlot, and her family at Jericho. Whole city destroyed, but he saved those who he could declare righteous. God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And he says, I will spare the city, the cities, if there are 50 righteous. Now, a cynical look at this would be this. It's easy for God to say because he knew there weren't 50 righteous people there. So his plan is still intact. God is using this conversation with Abraham for something bigger. We see the bargaining process. Abraham says, will you spare it for 50? Probably thinking in a city that size there probably were 50, but God so quickly agrees, yeah, I'll spare it for 50. He says, oh, how about 45? Yeah. How about 40? Yeah. How about 30? Yeah. How about 20? Yeah. And there's nothing, I wasn't there, nothing in any version of this that I've read that sounds like God is going, come on, we started at 50. I'm already down to 30. How much more do you want? You don't see any indication that God is going to draw the line anywhere. Do you? I don't. And I'm sure that Abraham stopped where he stopped because he thought 10 was a safely low number. I think all Abraham had to do for this whole city to be spared was simply ask God, will you spare the city for my sake? Abraham didn't live in Sodom, but God would have spared it for Abraham's sake. Abraham was the one person who had that kind of standing with God. He was willing to spare it for the sake of 50 righteous people all the way down. I'll spare it for even 10 righteous people. I'm utterly convinced he would spare it for the sake of one righteous person, and that one righteous person was Abraham. But was a, how could Abraham be truly righteous? This was Old Testament. This was before the cross. This was before the law. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, Genesis chapter 15, 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham's standing with God was because of this righteousness on credit and because he was in a covenant with God. Remember this. God made promises to Abraham Abraham believed the promises, and based on his belief in these promises, he obeyed God. The covenant ceremony that took place later was a formalization of this relationship. 
Three times in Scripture, Abraham is referred to as the friend of God. That's huge. And this, again, is the tone that emerges when we read here in, in, in Genesis. Abraham is my friend. This is the plan I'm working on. To bless all mankind, or all those who will avail themselves of my plan. So I'm involving my friend in this moment. And it gets better. Because it dawned on me that this episode, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, is a key to understanding what are known as the conquest narratives. You know, there are people, how many of you pay attention to this kind of thing, one of the uh, objections people have to the Bible, to the God of the Bible. You know, it's like, oh, you talk about this loving, merciful God, and yet we read right there in your Bible where he commanded men at certain times to destroy whole cities, whole areas, telling them specifically Kill every man, woman, and child, and every animal. Now, how could God, how could a just God command something like this? And this is essentially what's getting ready to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, isn't it? You know, we see this uh, in Jericho. Or uh, Saul with the Amalekites, which we're going to look at here in a second. There's a certain horror that grips us because we assume, when we read this, that there have to be some good people in these evil cities and lands. And we feel like Abraham did. God is going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked in this act of judgment. Remember, though, we just talked about God always took care of whoever fell into that category, starting way back with Noah. Interestingly, the, the, uh, the, the word tells us that one of the reasons it was 400 years, you know, when God speaks to Abraham, telling him, uh, your, your descendants, this is during the vision, during the covenant-cutting ceremony, uh, your, your uh, descendants are going to live in a foreign land, and they're going to be afflicted 400 years. Uh, but then I'm going to bring them back and give this land back to them. And he says the reason that it's going to be 400 years is because the sin of the inhabitants of that land was not yet full. He was giving them space to repent. The, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It was already a sinful land, but they had 400 plus years to seek God to get right, that's 400 years of space to repent. That's, a, that's an enormous display of patience and mercy on the part of God. But they, they had to come to the place where none were seeking God. And listen to this, this only God knows when that moment is, what that, where that point is. When you look several hundred years later when God commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites, to destroy them utterly, man, woman, and child, and all the animals. You have to understand that only God knew the exact moment in history when there were none living in that country, in that city, who would ever call on him. And in that sense, you know, you, you cannot find the, the phrase, and we talk about the doc, doc, how many of you know what I'm talking about when I say the doctrine of uh, the age of accountability? 
okay? That, that God is not going to hold a child, a little child, accountable for not believing something that he can't understand yet. All right? Uh, and, you know, we get a hint of this, a pretty strong hint, when David, when the child that was born to Bathsheba died, and David had been uh, praying for the child's survival, and when the child died uh, and he washed himself and, and snapped out of it. They're like, well, you were mourning while he was uh, alive, and now you're, you're okay now that he's sick? He said, I can't do, or now that he's dead? He said, I can't do anything back uh, about that. He says, while he was, I afflicted myself while he was still alive, thinking, you know, the Lord in his mercy might uh, bring him out of that. But now that he's gone, I can't do anything about it. Listen, he says, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. This was a baby born in sin, but who hadn't been able to call upon the name of the Lord on his own. So in, in a, all I'm saying is, in a way, when you look at the destruction of the Amalekites, it was a mercy to those children, those nursing infants, as it specifies, because had they been allowed to grow up in that moment in history, they would have rejected God and suffered damnation. In this sense, the slaughter was a mercy to the innocent children. But only God knew where that second was, that moment in history when the iniquity of the Amalekites was full. And, and then God spoke judgment on them and used Saul to execute this judgment, or intended to. I'm going to say something about that in a minute. Sodom and Gomorrah had reached that point. God's righteousness and justice demanded judgment. No one in Sodom had the right standing with God to plead for deliverance, even if they were so inclined and they weren't. The only one that had that kind of pull with God was Abraham, and he was not going to intercede unless he knew what God was up to. So God told him. This is important. If God were absolutely, irrevocably committed to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't have to say anything to Abraham. Just go do it. After all, you don't want him talking to you all the way down to zero. It's not like... If Abraham had talked him down, if one thing, you see, I, I get two different pictures. One is God walking away, so I'm, whoo, glad he stopped at 10. Now I can go ahead and destroy the city. Or if Abraham had been bold enough to say, would you just do it for me? God wouldn't have said, oh, I wish you hadn't thought of that. This was his heart. This is why he told Abraham in the first place. Justice, God is a just God. He has to act justly, and that means he has to judge sin. He can't just change his mind. Even in his mercy, mercy there has to be a justice in his relenting. And in this case, that justice would be my covenant man, this man with right standing with me, is asking for this. I'm doing it for him. That's why he agreed so quickly. He could exercise mercy by honoring his covenant with Abraham. What was dear to Abraham in this case? Again, Lot and his family. He would rather see the city spared if it meant Lot's survival, but he was going to intercede for the righteous in the city as a whole, for Lot's sake. I want to contrast that with what we see with Saul and the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 3, Here's the command, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 
First, Saul goes and he, he evacuates the Kenites because they had been good to Israel. He's sparing the righteous and doesn't look like God had any problem with that. It's like, hey, I'm getting ready to come in there and uh, kill everybody. But you guys have been good, so you get out. We'll spare you guys. And God doesn't say, hey, I told you I want the Kenites killed too. He doesn't raise an issue with that. But as we read on, beginning in verse 7, 1 Samuel 15, 7, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. They disobeyed God. Saul disobeyed God because they spared the king, probably so they could publicly humiliate him. It's kind of a trophy. And all that was good, that's what they spared. What was good according to them? The best sheep, best lambs, see? They destroyed what was worthless. What was worthless to them? Every man, woman, and child. And this is something that was fundamentally wrong with Saul, character-wise. Don't get me wrong. The Amalekites had it coming. But God, again, is looking for someone to intercede, not for someone to stand with him in judgment. It was God's judgment. So from the divine perspective, it is no moral tragedy that the people were killed. There's just something wrong with a man who was willing to disobey God to the point where he will gladly kill all the people. Sorry, willing to obey God to the point where he is willing to gladly kill all the people, but willing to disobey God because he values sheep and oxen more than the people. That was what separated Abraham and Moses, as we'll see next week, from guys like Saul. And they have been precious and few throughout history. I'm going to close with another observation on that sad truth right after I make my final point concerning prayer and fasting. I believe it was God's desire to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. I at least believe that he would have had Abraham requested it. But it had to be Abraham because he was the only one who had that standing, that right standing with God. I'm going to make that point next week too because it shows up even more clearly with Moses. But if you are the kind of person who delights in standing in judgment with God, you are not the kind of person God will probably reveal his plans to. He's looking for intercessors. Remember, God himself came down to see the sin of Sodom from man's perspective. Too often, we are determined to only see the sin of the land from God's perspective. Don't misunderstand me. We should not take a soft view of sin. That's not what I mean. Just that we should always be looking for the slightest opportunity to show mercy without violating justice. For God, that simply meant honoring the prayer of his covenant man. 
Now we see in the ultimate destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see what God thinks of sin. And yet God was still, was God being soft on sin? If he was willing to spare all of that sinfulness for the sake of ten people? No, he's simply honoring the request for his covenant man. God will still get his message through. Justice is still ultimately going to be done. In fact, there's another place we could look to see what God's judgment on sin looks like. And I'm almost there. Abraham did not fast or sit in ashes crying out day by day for the deliverance of Sodom. He had a conversation with God, his friend. The effectiveness of his prayer was rooted 100% in his relationship with God. And what was the root of that relationship? It was God's promise, Abraham's belief, and his obedience, culminating in a covenant. God made the first move. He's the one who called Abraham out of Ur. We have no reason to believe, I don't see, that Abraham was worthy of this calling more than anybody else, that he was inherently more qualified than anybody else anywhere in the world. But God chose him and called him, and Abraham responded. Now, when we fast, and here we kind of of come full circle, uh, more or less, it's about what is dear, what is good in our sight. Are we more concerned about people than we are sheep and oxen? Are we more concerned about maturing in our relationship with God than we are about food? What is it that we are pursuing wholeheartedly? You see, just as Abraham was qualified by simply believing and obeying, that's you and me today. If we have received the promise of salvation that only God can offer, if you are a believer a born-again believer in the finished work of Christ on the cross, you have that kind of right standing with God, and your prayers are potentially that effective and that powerful. Abraham is not who made his prayers effective. God made Abraham's prayers effective. His relationship with God made those prayers effective. Praise and worship team, you could be making your way up here. But those who would exhibit the kind of boldness that was necessary to stand before God and intercede have been rare, certainly rare before Christ. I want to look at one final scripture before I close. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. And you can read all of Ezekiel, you can, or you read this chapter to get the context, but this is this talking about judgment that is falling on Israel. So so I sought, this is God, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Destruction is coming, judgment is coming, and what is God looking for? Somebody He had people who were pronouncing that judgment. It was a warning. That was a mercy too. He's not just going to spring it on them. They had hundreds of years to repent as well. But they had invited this judgment. And who's God still looking for in this late hour? I'm looking for a man, one man who will stand in the gap before me. I'm looking for somebody to take me on on behalf of of the object of my judgment. 
Why? Because I want to spare the land and not destroy it. But I need a covenant man, a covenant woman to ask. But I found none. So he made one. By giving God the Son, Jesus, to become a man and become the ultimate intercessor for all mankind. He stood in the gap between God and man. Between, excuse me, between man and God's judgment. Judgment had to come. In this case, because Jesus stood there in the gap, all of that judgment for all the sin of mankind fell on him. Stand up with me. When Christ was on the cross, that cross stood there between us and the judgment of God that was for us. That judgment, everything that happened to Jesus was God's judgment on our sin. And Jesus willingly did that. God willingly gave Jesus to do that. And when we recognize that we are sinful when we are in need of salvation, that our only plea is that. It's not, oh God, I just realized that I am sinful, and here's my promise. I will do my best to do better from now on. If you'll only spare me. Anything along that line is hopeless. Our only hope, our only hope is that the judgment that our sin cries out for demands has already been dispensed. Jesus has already borne it. We can receive it as a gift or we can reject it, but we cannot earn it. And God doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply spare us from the judgment. He doesn't simply say, your sin's already been judged, so you don't go to hell. He fills us with his spirit he qualifies us, and he empowers us to stand in the gap and intercede for the world. For our land. So that the world can receive the same forgiveness of sin. God called Abraham out and blessed him. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to bless you. I love you. This is what I'm doing for you. And my love for you is so overwhelming that if anybody who gets on my side in this and blesses you, I'm going to bless them too. But I've got a mission for you. I've got a purpose. I've called you, and I've blessed you so that through you, I can bless the world. And that's a you know what his, the, the ultimate promise fulfillment was? It was Jesus. This is what he was talking about, bringing Jesus to the world through the line of Abraham. He's got a plan for you too. And he's got a promise for you too. Will you believe God and will you obey God? That puts you in a position to stand in God's presence and your prayers are powerful. When you see yourself, oh, I'm at this he looks at you. Even more so, in a way. Abraham's obedience was just, there's something so pure. 
He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have the law. We have all this, but we also have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. And it's so hard to imagine that God could look at us like he looked at Abraham, when really it's even better than that, kids. He looks at us like he looks at Jesus. When we recognize that it is only in him that we have that kind of right standing, but we do. Salvation from hell is a big deal. It's a huge deal. But don't just sit around waiting for, well, I'm just going to enjoy life and thank God when this life's over, I get heaven instead of hell. No, it's way better than that. We should have a lively hope of heaven. We should be like, come on, let's get out of here. Let's get the work done so we can go to our real home. But meanwhile, let's get the work done. He's called us to do something that he has empowered us to do, qualified us to do, given us the position to do. But it starts with recognizing you need a Savior. You have to start by responding to the promise God gave you, which is this, that if you will believe, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That puts you in the camp of the righteous. Is that a decision you need to make today? It depends. If you've never made that decision, then it is a decision you need to make today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing, and I'm going to invite you to come and let me pray that prayer with you right now. The most important decision you can ever make in your life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for qualifying us to stand in your presence and intercede to not just bring our needs before you, which you invite us to do, which you command us to do, but to intercede for the land, to stand in the gap, to use us mightily in the proclamation of the life-saving, world-changing power of the gospel. And it's, it's my prayer now. I know I'm standing in a room full of mostly believers, but it's my prayer now that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who has not responded to that invitation, who has not received that free gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sin, righteousness, that you would convict them of their need for salvation today and grant them the wisdom, the boldness, and the humility to come and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.